You know, I'm going to draw a little bit of an analogy here at the beginning, so kind of stick with me. Uh, my knee surgery and the Christian life are very analogous. They were very similar. You know, in our Christian, in, in our lives, uh, we're debilitated by sin, right? Sin is working against us. Sin is residing in us, and it works against all the things that the Lord, the Lord uh, is doing. Uh, and so um, that surgery that I had was, was debilitating. You know, it wasn't just the, the, the sin of, now this is an analogy, that sin of arthritis that was, you know, really getting in that knee. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, that, that surgery affected, and they replaced the knee, you know. So I, I got a new knee. When we, when we become a Christian, we get a new heart, we're regenerated. But, but that surgery, just from hip to, to ankle, those muscles weren't working right anymore. And uh, because of that debil debilitating of sin, uh, our Christian lives don't work kind of like they're so really supposed to. That's why we have the Bible and why we have teaching and, and so forth. Um, but my physical therapy really is bringing back. It's really helping me to regain all the functions of that, of that surgery and after, with that new knee, getting all the advantages of it. And I was telling Dr. Royball that, that, that you know, when I flex my knee, I can get it up to 120 degrees now. And that, that was kind of the goal, or 120, 125, something like that. And then, but you also have to get it back to 180 degrees flat. I'm still working on that. I'm, I'm probably got a few more degrees to go with physical therapy before he clears me on that. Uh, but that's analogous to, to our, our, our life of sanctification as Christians. We're working to get back all those God-given abilities and God-given directions that he gives us. We're, we're working to get that back by eliminating that sin in our lives. So the book of James is... Is, is really about that physical therapy. It's about what we need to, to, to work on as a result of that, of that radical surgery God did on our heart. We still have those remnants of sin in us, and we've got to work to get back to uh, what, or, or get, get to what God wants us to be. And thank heavens, when he comes again, I'll get rid of the old scarred body, you know, and it's done away with, and we have a new one, and we look forward to that as Christians. But until then, we're left with that physical therapy. James is a book of sort of physical therapy. Uh, but if you look at your notes, I entitled it, James, what did I say there? Faith in action. And that's what this physical therapy is about. You know, I, I get in there and he, he works me. He takes that knee and does all kinds of different things. And he gives it to me to take home and do all those sort of, sort of things. And so uh, that, that leg and that knee has to be alive. It has to be working continually. And uh, so here, James is a book of faith in action. Let's see if I can get up on this thing. Okay, good. Uh, so here's what some people have said in the past, and I put them here on your notes, the first page. And, and since James is kind of a book of contrast, I've, 
I've, I've put these notes together in chart form, so it, it's kind of a contrast, and we'll look at that as we go through. But Martin Luther, back in 1522, uh, in the introduction to his uh, New Testament that he wrote in German back then, uh, he put this quote. In fine, or in other words, after it's all said, or, or taking everything into consideration, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially those to the Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle, these are, all, these are the books which show thee Christ and teach thee everything that is needful and blessed for thee to know, even though thou never see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore is St. James' epistle a right strawy epistle in comparison with them, for it has no gospel character in it. Martin Luther didn't have much use for the book of, of James. But why was that? Now, he's not denying its, its, its uh, canonicity. He's not denying that it's, it's not a book of the Bible. He's, he's accepting that uh, because of what he says in comparison to the others. So he's including James in the canon of Scripture there. But why would he say that it's right straw? It's full of straw. It's, it's a straw man, he says. Why? What was, what was Luther combating at the time? This is the time of the Reformation, right? What was he combating? Salvation by faith alone. Yeah. So he was searching for that. Uh, we had the privilege of being in the room where he did a lot of that searching. And uh, that was amazing to see. But, uh, uh, and, and so uh, the, his critics... Uh, a lot of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, his critics were, were saying, no, you, you have to do works. You, you have to do good works, and that's, that has to be uh, your salvation. And so he was uh, using these other scripture, that are especially Romans, where he came to know the Lord. Um, he was, he was uh, using these scriptures as doctrinal basis for his argument against uh, salvation through works. Uh, so James doesn't fit in to that, what he was trying to use in his, 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 in his defense of the gospel. And uh, so uh, that's why he says it was straw. It wasn't use, useful for him at the time for what he was trying to accomplish. Uh, but then look, look uh, and, and like I say, he wasn't denying the inspiration of James. Uh, as, as his statement indicates. But uh, look at what John Calvin says. This is not what he said, but this is what, uh, what uh, Douglas Moo in his, his book uh, attributes to Calvin. He accepted the full apostolic authority of the letter and argued that Paul's and James' perspectives on justification could be harmonized. They could work together so as to maintain the unity of Scripture. So Calvin was, was stating here that it does fit in to the unity of Scripture. It, it does fit in. They're, they're complementary uh, concepts on uh, justification. And so uh, a more contemporary author uh, says here, the epistle sternly insists upon Christian practice consistent with Christian belief. It heaps scathing contempt upon all empty profession 
and administers a stinging rebuke to the reader's worldliness. And here's the important part. Its stress upon the gospel's ethical imperative makes the epistle as relevant today as when it was first written. So that statement kind of brings it all together, uh, and that helps us to, to position James as we, as we study through it here. Uh, by the way, if you look at uh, MacArthur's study Bible or, or other commentaries, uh, I, do, I have taken most of this from MacArthur's commentaries and, and uh, Bible handbook, and also from Douglas Moo and his writings. And I put it into a form that helps us to, to understand uh, what those narratives are saying. So on page two, up at the top, who wrote James? Well, the book tells us James. Chapter one, verse one, James wrote it. Now, however, there were four James in scripture. So which one was it? Well, <laughs> there was James the less, as I put up here, number one in your outline, and uh, James the father of Judas, not Iscariot. And they're mentioned in these places in the Bible. We don't need to go look them up. But no one has seriously ever really considered either of these two as the author of James. They just were not of the, uh, of the position uh, in the Christian life uh, as, uh, as James was. James was very unique in his perspective and his experience to write this. And then thirdly, there's the James, the son of Zebedee, who was the brother of John. Uh, but this, this James was martyred too early to have written uh, the book of James. And we find that in Acts uh, 12 too. And so uh, really the only one that, that we, we attribute this to is James, the oldest half-brother of Christ uh, and a brother of Jude as well. So let's look over on the right-hand side. This James, uh, we'll, we'll get into uh, a little bit of his, of his Christian biography uh, next week when we, when we study chapter 1. But uh, he had first rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He, he uh, if, if you remember here in John, uh, the, the family came and, and told him, you know, no, uh, you need to come away for a while, you know, get, get away from this ministry. Uh, and so, so basically his family is rejecting Jesus as, as the Messiah and uh, doing the work that his father had given him to do. But later... Uh, James believed in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 tells us there that, that uh, he was among the believers that were there with Jesus. Uh, and not only that, but point B here, he became the key leader in the Jerusalem church. Uh, you remember when uh, uh, there was a controversy over uh, whether the Gentiles would be included in, in uh, the Christian church. And uh, they came back to the council in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, James was the key leader there. And James, uh, after all the deliberation in the Jerusalem council, James wrote a letter to be taken back to the churches and uh, said, we, we accept the Gentiles on their faith in Christ. And so uh, he was a key leader there, a pillar of the church, so to speak, along with Peter and John. Uh, He was, he was also known as James the Just because of his devotion to righteousness. He was martyred about 62, according to the first century uh, historian Josephus. 
so um, he was, he was uh, known as James the Just because of that. In point D, uh, this epistle has a distinctive Jewish nature to it. And uh, the reason we say that uh, in Acts 15 and, and Acts 21, uh, the, the picture is drawn there uh, of, of the uh, similarities between uh, the Jewish faith and, and the Christian faith. And, so, and, and, of course, he was writing this to the Jews that were dispersed abroad in verse 1. So it has a distinctive uh, character to it uh, uh, with, with the picture that's given of James in Acts 15 and Acts 21. But uh, more importantly, too, the book of James contains four direct quotes from the Old Testament, and it has over 40 Old Testament allusions. Uh, and so... James had an intimate knowledge of the Old Testament, and, and as the teaching, as we'll take a look a little bit later here today, uh, the teachings of Christ fit right with that. So the teachings of Christ and, and, and the book of James as a result here, how does the Christian life and what Jesus was teaching fit in with all those things that the Jews had believed and what they had experienced and the history that had come with them to this point in time. So James used a lot of Old Testament allusions. Um, also, James' vocabulary that he uses in James uh, is very similar to, to words in, in, that are recorded in Acts 15 compared uh, with, with James. And that further corroborates his, his authorship here. Uh, in James 1.1, 1, 1, what does he say? Uh, uh, James, and he concludes that, greetings in his, in his uh, salutation, in his uh, opening there. He says greetings. Well, greetings is a word that was used in Acts 15. Beloved, your souls, visit, keep, turn. All those were words that were, that were used in both Acts 15 and James here. So we have a pretty good, solid case for this James being the author of this book called James. It was most likely uh, uh, written to believers that were scattered, verse 1, as a result of the unrest that was recorded in Acts 12, which was about A.D. 44. Uh, there was uh, the dispersion of... of uh, uh, Jews that uh, perhaps occurred after Stephen was martyred and then later as King Agrippa brought persecution on the Jews, dispersions of the Jews from uh, uh, the land of Israel at that time. So there was a, a vast migration, so to speak, or immigration, I guess, of, of Christians out of Jerusalem, out of that area, uh, into, into the various... Uh, parts of the world. And we'll take a, again, we'll take a little bit closer look at that, look at that uh, when we get into verse 1 next week. But it's important to note because that's why James wrote this letter. Here are these Christians scattered now out everywhere, and who is ministering to them? Well, Paul is ministering to them, but uh, James felt it important to minister to them, and he wrote the book of James here. Uh, we stick with that uh, 
uh, eight, about the, the range of A.D. 44 to 49 as the, as the date for the authorship of, of this uh, because uh, there's, no, there's no mention of the Jerusalem Council uh, in the book of James. So the lack of any reference to it tells us that it was probably written before the Jerusalem Council, uh, which was A.D. 49. So that range of A.D. 44 to 49 is the probable range of this, which makes it the earliest, uh, earliest written book in the Bible. Uh, interestingly enough, it was one of the last that was accepted into the canon later on, and that plays into this. So the earliest written one, and probably one of the last that was admitted into the canon. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's, let's go on to uh, the background and settings here. The, um, the recipients of the book, as we talked about, were Jewish believers who had been dispersed, possibly as a result of Stephen's martyrdom, as I said, and the persecution under Herod Agrippa, which is uh, <clears throat> recorded in Acts 12 and other places in history. <clears throat> Number two here, the author refers to his audience as brethren 15 times in the book of James. And uh, that was a common epithet among the first century Jews to call each other brethren. Uh, Brother Milk, when he writes us an email, he always says, Brother Mike, so and so and so and so and so. And then he signs off, Brother Milk, thank you. And... Uh, so that was very common in this time. <clears throat> Gives you an idea of his connection with his people. He was very concerned. He, he, wanted, he wanted to minister to them at a personal level. As I mentioned before, James is Jewish in content. Uh, just one example of that, the Greek word translated assembly in James 2.2 is the word actually the Greek word for synagogue? And so he uses terms that would be familiar to them and their background. And as I said, there are more than 40 allusions to the Old Testament. Let me see here in my notes. Uh, and actually more than 20 of allusions to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to take a look at a few of those. So uh, the, the way the book of James is written, it's been compared with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Proverbs, because of its direct and strong statements on living. Think about the book of Proverbs, just those little, those little blips in there, those little, little uh, verses that are, that are pithy, and to the point. And so James has written much in that same style and his statements on wise living. Uh, James has a strong condemnation of social injustice uh, when the poor man comes and so forth. Uh, and that, some have called him the Amos of the New Testament. Now, I'd never heard anybody call him that. <laughs> but uh, if you go back and look at the book of Amos, you'll see that that uh, <coughs> Amos was much the same way. And uh, 
So there's a, there's a lot of connection here uh, with James, his background, and his understanding of the Old Testament. Also, point six here, at least 30 references to nature are in James, like the waves of the sea or reptiles or the heaven gave rain. And uh, that suggests that, that he was well acquainted with the outdoors. That was a part of his life. Uh, does that seem true about James if he, if, if he was the brother of Jesus and had become a Christian and had spent time with Jesus? Where was Jesus? Well, he was everywhere. He went all over that area. So he spent a lot of time out there. So again, this background for James uh, gives us a, an idea of, of <coughs> who he was, where he came from, where he spent his time, who he spent his time with. But I think more importantly, uh, point seven here, James was also profoundly influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. His epistle may be viewed as a practical commentary on the Lord's Sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so we'll spend some time going through that comparison. But the reason I went through all this background and all this setting for the book of James here is, is that I've, I've highlighted in, in, uh, in yellow there for you. James has a practical emphasis, referencing back to Proverbs, stressing godly behavior rather than simply theoretical knowledge. That's what we're going to find when we go through. James wrote with a passionate desire for his readers to be uncompromisingly obedient to the Word of God. So with this background and this setting, we begin to see the importance of James in that practical emphasis that he brings uh, to godly behavior, not just our theology, but to our behavior that's a result of that. So let's, let's look at the comparison to the Sermon on the Mount. The extent of the Sermon on the Mount's influence on James can be seen in many references and allusions to it. There are more than 20. I put more than 20 on here. There are actually more than what we're on here, depending on how you organize it, who you look at that's, that's writing this. So um, <clears throat> let's look at the first one, just to see here. James 1-2. Somebody read me James 1-2. And then some of you turn to Matthew 5 also. We'll be there in a second. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy. So joy, when you, my, there's my brethren, there's that word brethren again. When you, when you encounter various trials, does that resonate anywhere with Matthew Five or six or seven. Look up Matthew five ten through twelve.
Is there any parallel between James and Matthew 5? I don't know if it's, it seems to me maybe it's the same line. <laughs> they both say, rejoice, count it all joy, rejoice when men persecute you. It's, it's very parallel. Uh, so there's joy in the midst of trials, both are, are teaching us. And then Luke 6.22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. So uh, Luke's account of the same thing is, is just right straight on. And James is right there with him. Okay, and so as, as we go down through this, uh, God's desire and work in us is perfection. Uh, asking God for good gifts and let's go on down to uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. And uh, dead, worthless, and deceiving faith. James 2.14 says, what? Somebody read that section for us. Okay, <clears throat> and so uh, down to verse 26, it says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So there is a living faith, faith in action, and there is a dead or worthless and deceiving faith. So here we get the great contrast. What does Matthew 7, 21 through 23 say about that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. So there's that great distinction there in our Lord's mind about a living faith and dead faith. And when we get to James chapter 2, we'll, we'll dig into that and find out really what, what does all that mean? How does all that fit in our Christian life? Uh, but here we see that 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 allusion back to the Sermon on the Mount. And then we go on. Let's go to uh, James 3.18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So then look at Matthew uh, 5.9. What does it say? Blessed are the who? Peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So there's blessing for those who make peace. So James talks about the, the, the seed, the, the faith there, whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then the parallel 
in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers. So there's blessing of those who make peace. And of course, we will delve into that one also to see what that means as we go along. And then let's go to James 4.4. 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, so there's, there's that friendship of the world equated with being the same as hostility toward God. And back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or wealth. And so the whole idea there is that friendship with the world, if you're serving mammon, if you're serving the things of the world, uh, you can't do that and serve God. Same thing James is saying. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So we, we really begin to understand that, that James, as he wrote here, had a very intimate knowledge of the Sermon on the Mount because there's more than 20 of these, of these similarities. And uh, that kind of corroborates his, his probably being there, hearing his brother saying these things. If not, he, he knew about those from other, from other sources. But he had an intimate knowledge of what was being said here. That makes me want to look at James even more closely, <laughs> you know, than just reading through it. So I think we'll really enjoy our study uh, as we go through. And then there are many other uh, allusions here. <clears throat> James, interestingly enough, refers to Christ by name only twice. James 1.1 in James 2.1. But his epistle here abounds with references to Christ's teaching, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. So the conclusion that I highlighted in yellow for you there is that James' application of truth to his readers', readers lives gives believers a clear understanding of Christ's wisdom. Those close parallels as James goes through and describes more fully, some of these allusion, uh, by allusion back to the Sermon on the Mount helps us understand more of Christ's wisdom. So that gives me even a more interest in, well, what does James have to say about all this? Uh, so I, I really got, uh, got uh, interested as we, as we went through. Okay, any questions on that? I, I lined them all out there for you. You can go back and look them up and and uh, enjoy seeing those parallels. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's shift gears just a little bit here. Uh, how is God's character displayed in James? This is one of the things that the, the Bible handbook uh, has on each of the books of the Bible. Where, how is God's character displayed in James? And... Uh, that's always good to look at because uh, he is there in every book of the Bible. And the first thing it, 
that I put down is God is accessible. James 4, 8. What does that say? Somebody look that up as we're going through here. I hear those pages turning. Somebody read that for me. Okay, first of all, we see that really pointed <laughs> statement that he makes here, that proverbial statement that he makes. Uh, but more importantly, what does he say? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God is accessible how? As we draw near to him, he is accessible. Is that consistent with what we learn all through Scripture? Pick up just a little bit. Okay. As we deal with sin in our lives, cleanse your hands, you sinners, then we are drawing near to him. And as we purify our hearts and not be double-minded. Good observation. God is immutable. What does immutable mean? It's one of those big words, 50-cent word. <laughs> Unchanging, yeah, okay. What does James 1.17 say? Okay, the Father of lights, it says, has no variation or shifting shadow. He doesn't change. So James brings that out. And also, the same verse, he is the father of lights, or the God, God is light. And we see that in John and in other places. Uh, number four there, God is a promise keeper, James 1.12. Somebody read that one. Okay, good. <clears throat> so this, this man who is persevering under trial, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. This man who is persevering under, under trial, once he's been approved, will receive what? The crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so as uh, Pastor Tom has been going through the book of Revelation and we, we get all that timeline down, which I won't go through here, <laughs> but uh, as we get that timeline down, there's a time we're going to receive that crown of life. It's been promised. And the book of Revelation is just a, it's an amplification of how that promise comes about. <clears throat> and that's just one example. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? There's that word again. He promised it. And so he is a promise keeper. 
our whole Christian experience is based on that hope that we have at the end for eternity and being able to uh, honor Him and glorify Him forever uh, in heaven or in this, that space in eternity. Uh, and that has been promised to us. <clears throat> God is a promise keeper. And then God is unified. <clears throat> James 2, 19 and 20. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Uh, so uh, James is just making the statement here. You believe that God is one. We believe that God is one. He's in three persons. The Trinity, we believe that. <clears throat> but God is God. And uh, <clears throat> he is unified. Each part of that Trinity does everything in perfect unison with the Father's uh, will. So we see God's character uh, throughout James here. And then uh, here, here's a meat now, uh, the next chart. Faith alive. Back to where we started. James wants his readers to demonstrate in their lives the qualities of a living faith. Now, we're making a distinction here. Faith alive, a living faith. So it, there, there's a uh, contrast there. There is a living faith, as we have looked back to the Sermon on the Mount. There is a dead faith. And uh, James wants his readers to demonstrate those qualities of a living faith. So let's spend a little time here. Uh, let's, let's see how this might apply as we go through the book of James, how this might apply to even us. Okay, uh, get ready now here to flip through James with me, <laughs> okay? James 1, 2, and 3. Somebody read James 1, 2, and 3. We've already read part of it, but go ahead and read it again. Okay, so there, there is a description being tested, and in verse 3, there is a result of that. Patience or endurance, depending on what version of the Bible you have. Same thing. <clears throat> so this faith, this, this living faith that James is describing, is a tested faith. And that tested faith results in a patience or an endurance in this life. <clears throat> Do you kind of begin to get to see the difference between living and dead faith? Okay, somebody read uh, James 6, through, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Don't be scared. Okay. <clears throat> so there's doubt, a double-minded man, 
tossed with the waves. Anybody ever been in a boat tossed by the waves? <laughs> it's not a good place to be. Uh, we have two of our children and then their spouses have been in the Coast Guard. And when those waves get high and start battering you, you call for the Coast Guard and they go out and get you. Uh, so I've got some videos of my helicopter pilot daughter out there plucking people off of ships uh, in the midst of waves. And that ship was 700 feet long. And the waves were breaking over the bow of that ship, going about a third of the way down that ship. And up there in that little helicopter, picking that guy up, you know, off that ship. So it's not a good place to be, battered by the waves. And... Uh, being with doubt is not a good place to be. But what's the, what's the result, though, if we are without doubt? Verse 5 there, what does it say? What a promise. What a promise. Answered prayer. If we are living without doubt, we have answered prayer. If you're out there in that 700-foot boat and you're sick and you need medical attention and the waves are breaking over the bow of that ship 300 feet down the length of that ship, your answered prayer is the Coast Guard coming out to get you. <laughs> That's a weak analogy. Uh, this, is, this is God, and uh, he will answer your prayer. How much more will he answer your prayer? Sometimes Lizzie can't fly it so bad, so, you know, your prayer is going to be answered maybe a different way. Let's look at uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Somebody read that one. Okay, so that living faith here is described as enduring or, or living through temptation. And the result, Milt, is what? Eternal life. Eternal life. <clears throat> Pretty important to know what James has to say here. He wants his readers to be brought to the point in their life where these qualities that he talks about are being put into practice, which makes it living. It's not good enough to know the quality. It's got to be put into practice. We have to be living that. It has to be a faith that's alive. And uh, James uh, just goes on. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Somebody uh, read that. Okay, it's more than belief. Believing is fine, but we're perfected by the results of practicing those beliefs. 
were perfected by those works. And we'll get into these verses about faith and works later. Somebody will. I don't think I have those, but <laughs> Mill will or Jordan will. Uh, it, but that's a great... Uh, some people call that the interpretive cha challenge of James. I don't see any challenge there at all. I think it's perfectly clear. And as we begin to see this background of James and how he's writing this and why he's writing this and who he's writing it to and his desire for that eternity, this becomes very clear. A living faith uh, produces good works, and our faith then is perfected by those works. Verse 22. I didn't have... Uh, Joan, can you read verse 22 also? Okay. 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 That makes it very clear. Thank you. <clears throat> so then, uh, chapter two, verses twenty-three through twenty-five. Somebody read that one. Okay, so Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then another example that they give there. The description of that living faith is believing God. And the result of that is a righteousness before God that only Christ can bring, of course. Not the works, but our faith in Christ alone. And the result is that righteousness before God. It comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, so such a living faith is more than knowledge and assent. You have to know that. There has to be knowledge. There has to be an assent to that. Uh, assent being the, the believing by faith and acting upon that. It includes a heartfelt trust that endures and obeys God. Now, that put a lot of these concepts we've been talking about together in one little verse here. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to string that out through the book of James here. But such a living faith, and we've defined that now, a faith in action that has the results here that God wants, is more than mere knowledge and, and even assent to it. We, we agree that that is the right knowledge. It includes a heartfelt trust, our faith, that endures and obeys God. Where does that endurance come from? Verse 2. Where does it come from? Go ahead. You said it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It comes from God. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you endure various trials. 
and then we have to obey it. We have to, we have to benefit from, in this case, those trials. We have to be obedient to the things that we've been told and, and obey those things. So we have to see those things in action in our life, uh, obeying God. So uh, the last little takeaway that I put at the bottom of that chart, James contrasts living faith to dead or empty faith. And so I tried to do that as we went through these charts. I, I took, uh, took these commentators and I, and I split, it, split those sentences in two for you so we can see the contrast, so we can see the dead faith and we can see the living faith. Dead faith does not result in a transformed life. But the transformed life is the characteristic of the living faith. James wants us to have that living faith. Because in the end, if, if our faith has been misplaced, if our faith is not in, truly in the Savior, and we've been regenerated, we may have faith, we will have faith in something, but if it's not in Christ alone, uh, then, uh, which is evidenced by the works and the results that we see here, then it's a dead faith. It's no good. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't result in eternal life, as we saw. So again, James is drawing this picture. He's drawing us down to that personal application, that, that how are you doing with this? And uh, let's go over to the last chart. Because James is rather complex to outline, there are a number of ways that the book has been outlined so we can get the, the arrangement of its content. One way is to arrange it is around a series of tests by which the genuineness of a person's faith may be measured. So James, as I noted here, James wrote his epistle to challenge his readers to examine their faith, to see if it is that genuine saving faith. Accordingly, the outline is structured, this outline is structured around a series of tests that help us as we ask these questions of this test of ourselves uh, to determine, is my faith alive or is it dead? Is it going to result in life eternal or, or not? So, so here's, here's an outline of the test. The test of perseverance in suffering. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because they produce something. The test of perseverance in suffering. And then as we go on in chapter 1, the test of blame in temptation. Did the devil make me do it? <laughs> no, the devil didn't make you do it. Uh, you chose. Uh, number three, the test of response to the Word. Do I love the Word? Do I study it? Do I put it into practice? Do I see the results of my life? Uh, part four here, the test of impartial love. How does that love that we know we're supposed to have, how does that love actually work out? Does it work out with partiality to certain ones or is it applied to 
all. Uh, number five, the test of righteous works. And there we get into the meat of works. Um, many people do works, but this is the test of righteous works. Is it a result of our faith in the Lord? Or is it, a, is it an attempt to uh, please the Lord? an attempt in our own power, our own resources to please the Lord. Uh, the test of the tongue. Uh, boy, if, if there were only one test and it was the test of the tongue, I would fail. <laughs> I'd fail them all, actually, if there was just one. But uh, the test of the tongue is, is a hard one. Um, number seven, the test of humble wisdom. The test, number eight, of worldly indulgence. Boy, that's, that's a biggie in our world today. Uh, and again, we can see, we, we can be uh, uh, indulging in the world and, and, and enjoying all the things that the world gives. And, and we can be uh, separated from the world. Uh, totally. And what, what is the right mix there? And this test will, will help us to understand uh, how to live in this world as Christians. Uh, number nine, the test of dependence. Number 10, the test of patient endurance. I, can, I endured my knee surgery. Patty can attest that at times I was not patient. <laughs> Uh, we all have that propensity, uh, but uh, this helps us to understand the test of patient endurance, the test of truthfulness, the test of prayerfulness, and then uh, at the end, the test of true faith. So as, as we look at James in the context of all of Scripture, James actually complements Paul's emphasis on justification by faith. As the church has been through that wonderful teaching on, on the book of Romans, and we get to understand uh, from other books that we've studied here in Sunday school uh, about uh, justification by faith, James actually complements that with his own emphasis on spiritual fruitfulness, which demonstrates that faith that Paul wrote about. So it helps us along in our Christian life to, to be working with that living faith, not a dead faith. Any thoughts or questions before we start to wrap it up here? I hope, hope you get excited about the book of James. I'm excited about it. Good point. Yeah, I put down there at the bottom my references, and, and I pretty liberally quoted them here. So uh, there are a few things that I inserted. But uh, MacArthur's handbook and commentary on James and Douglas Moo, who does an excellent job 
uh, in his commentaries. And uh, Pastor Tom has tapes, or uh, not tapes, but you know, recordings on, <laughs> uh, showing my age, uh, recordings there that are available on the website uh, on the book of James. So as Jordan was saying, read through it, get to know it a little bit, and then we'll go be going through it uh, verse by verse. So next week, we're going to talk about James 1.1. starts off with James. So we'll do a little biography, a little bit more of a biography on James. Take a look at his life. And then he says he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a look at James's character and how that is, comes to us from various parts of Scripture here. And then he's writing it to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. That was part of his ministry. This book of James was part of his ministry. He's writing to these brethren that are dispersed abroad. So we'll look at the parts of that and find out how that developed. And then the last thing, his greeting. He says, greetings. What's so important about that? Hello, how are you doing? And we shake hands, you know. But uh, why is this greeting important there in Scripture? And how do we go about implementing that in our living faith? Okay, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you that, that there are many aspects to the book of James as you have had it written to us. And we want to understand every aspect of it. We want to understand the importance of it in our lives, not for us, uh, but for the purpose of our lives demonstrating a living faith to others as we are left here and that qualifies us for worshiping you in eternity. And so uh, I just pray that you'd guide us in that. And as we read through it, Father, this week, whatever portions we can, I pray that you'll open our eyes and open our hearts to what you have to say to us there. And as uh, the final analysis here, uh, we see that, that faith was active along with works and that faith was completed by a faith is completed by a man's works and we want to understand that uh, that's where we want to be we want our faith to be proper and we want it to be completed by our works help us to understand and put that into practice in our lives uh, as we go to uh, perhaps service this after, uh, the next service or as we go home today, I pray that you'll guide us in our worship of you today, the day that's set aside for that. And uh, we pray in our week to come, Father, that uh, we'll be looking to you, that we'll be asking you in prayer without any doubting and uh, for those uh, blessings that only you can bring by your grace in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.